you would, turn in your Bibles. If you have your Bibles with you, or if you have a device, or if you need a Bible, our ushers can get you a Bible. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up and we can get you a hard copy of that. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 16. So if you need a Bible, just slip your hand up and we can get that to you. If you have a device, you can look it up on that as well. Those of you who are connecting by live stream, thank you very much. We're in John chapter 16, and we are working our way through the Gospel of John. So last week, we read a passage of Scripture that frankly is difficult to hear. And the reason why it's difficult to hear is because it's something that's coming for the Christian that Jesus was preparing his disciples for, and that was that the world, the world of unbelievers, may hate you. You don't like to be hated. No one likes to be hated. Yet Jesus, in preparing his disciples for what is to come, says, the world, if it hated me, will hate you. After last week's sermon, uh, a woman from the church came and spoke to me and said, Pastor Mike, um, you know, I have a, a relative, very close relative, that has told me on more than one occasion that, that he cannot wait to move from where he is because he's just tired of the Christians that live nearby him and just wants to get away from them because he can't stand them. And her being one of them. I don't know what that's like from a personal standpoint, but I do know that when she said that, there's a lot of pain. And when we talk about the world hating believers, and, and even as last week when we talked about some of those scenarios that perhaps you've gone through, you know, the world isn't faceless. When we think of situations like that, and sometimes we can... We can Think of them almost as if the world doesn't have a face. And what I mean by that is sometimes it's easy to get grumpy or angry or frustrated and say, you know, this world is just getting bad. It's just getting worse. Can you believe what you're... And, you know, we kind of wag our fingers and wag our heads and, and we get frustrated. But, but, but often we, we treat the world as if it isn't like people. As I've been studying through this passage, as I've been asking the Lord to change me, I've been inserting the names of unbelieving friends and relatives that I love. That, that, that when the world may hate me, or the world may hate you, you know, so I'm going to use the word Chris. And I actually have several friends named Chris, both guy and girl. And if any of those friends are listening to this, church, uh, this by chance, I'm not talking about you, Okay. But if Chris hates me, if Chris, you know, if, 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 if Chris's life is just getting worse and worse, and he or she loves his or her sin more and more, you know, the response that I have to that isn't like anger. It's, it's, it's pain. It's what it is that you're rejecting, who it is that you're rejecting is going to send you to an eternity separate from God in torment forever. 
And so when we read this passage and, and we, we see Jesus say, if the world hates you, the world has a face. It, it has a name. In this, from the standpoint of each one of us have people that we know and that we love that are going to, to perhaps hate us. And they're going to have their, their neck grow stiff against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in that reality, Jesus is also telling the disciples something that almost doesn't match. Because he's been with these disciples now three years. And he's telling them there's adversity that's coming, and it's very troublesome to them. He's been telling them that he himself is going to experience that adversity first and they after him. But then he's also telling, him, telling them that he is going away. Now, he was preparing the disciples to, for the difficulties to come, but he was telling them that as those difficulties come, he personally would not be there with them. Now, from a human standpoint, this almost doesn't make sense. Like, have you ever seen that little placard, Footprints in the Sand? Maybe you have it in your homes. You know, it has the, the little story. You know, there's, there's a picture and there's footprints in the sand. There's two sets of footprints. And then there's a section where there's one set of footprints. And, and you know, the, as the story goes, you have the individual who's talking to Jesus. They've, they've gone to heaven. They're talking to Jesus, and, and they can look back at their life, and, and like seeing footprints in the sand, they can see how Jesus was by them all the way. Yet, in some of the more difficult times, the footprints went from two sets to one. And it seemed to that person who's talking to Jesus that Jesus left them alone. And in that story, Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. When you saw one set of footprints, it was me carrying you. You were never alone. Amen. And we resonate with the truth of that from the standpoint of we are never left alone. But I've never had Jesus physically come and talk to me in my difficulties. Have you? Physically, like person to person. That's what the disciples had. He was there along the way. And now he was going away. And he actually said that was a good thing. Let's look in John chapter 16. Because this is one of those things where if we didn't read it from Jesus' words himself, we might not believe it. But John chapter 16 and verse 4. We're going to start in the middle of the verse because that's where we left off last week. John chapter 16 verse 4. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus going away from the disciples was a good thing in Jesus' opinion. For if I do not go away, the helper, or perhaps your translation says the advocate, 
will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Today we're going to be spending time talking about God. Well, that makes sense. We're at church, right? This is kind of what you do. But today we are going to talk specifically about the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, he lives inside of you permanently. He indwells you. But more than just learning about God the Spirit today, or data about him, I hope to share with you why Jesus said that it's actually better for him to go away and for the Spirit to be with the Christian in a new and fuller way. We may not finish this today. That's okay. I have a nice breaking point where we can say, oh, this is good. We'll pick it up next week. We might get through it today. Either way, we're going to look at what God says about himself. And so in doing this, we need to look at just God and affirm some things that may not necessarily be in this passage. Okay? I'm going to be using the screen a bit today. There's going to be some information that you can already see. And I'm going to review some things. Okay? This is simply to help guide where we're going. And in fact, a lot of times when we study the word, we start off with the main point and then we kind of develop it from there. This is kind of the opposite. We're starting with some of the primary points that are supporting ultimately the main point. So we're going to start with some specifics. And you might say, where is he going with this? Well, we're learning about God today. And in particular, we're learning about God the Holy Spirit. Because this is the first time in the Gospels that we have as much detailed information about God the Spirit in the Bible. If you're reading from beginning to end, you read about the Spirit. But it's here in John 14, 15, and 16 that Jesus starts to teach about the third person of the Godhead. Don't check out. Because it's easy to look at this and perhaps struggle to see the relevance. But, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, we aren't getting shortchanged when we get God the Spirit and not God the Son. Like, we don't have to settle. Nor are we settling when we have the Spirit and we don't have the physical Son among us. 
And we're going to see that importance here. Okay? All right. So, we must first talk about God. And when I have this information up here on the screen, this applies to all three persons of the Godhead. Okay? We worship a God who is one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. If you grew up in Judaism, this is part of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, you finish, one. Correct? We serve one God, yet he exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three persons are undivided, meaning this, and I don't mean to be irreverent. We don't have part of God in the Father, part of God in the Son, and part of God in the Spirit, as if he was divvied up. Each one is completely and fully God, and not part God. God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. God the Spirit is fully God. And these three persons in the Godhead exist in unity. They are all the same one true God. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they are all unified. And this uni, unity is an eternal unity in that they have always been one and they always be one. They aren't pitted against one another. They exist in unity with one another. Each person has always been God, has always been with one another, and will always be with one another in unity. Okay? And I have up here, there is equality. I say this from the standpoint of we often describe our belief in one God and three persons as the Trinity. And that's a good word. But another word could be used, and perhaps it's a bit more descriptive in its accuracy, and that is triunity. Why? Because this describes the interrelationship between the three persons. They are each fully, eternally, and indivisibly God, each equal, each one equal as God, and existing all together as one God. Now, again, I said before that we aren't shortchanged by not having Jesus and having the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus in this passage is saying that God is going to be with them. Just as he is with them. But it's different. Because he, God the Son, is going away. And now God the Spirit will be with them in a fuller and greater way. Now in talking about this talking about God, we must also talk about the three persons of the Godhead having different functions. Not each person of the Godhead functions identically with the other. And so, how is God the Spirit described in this passage that we just read? Well, first of all, he's described as a he. Notice that there in John? It says in verse 7, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, and that pronoun he is used throughout this. Why is that significant? Because the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. 
The Holy Spirit is a person. We describe the Godhead as three persons of the Godhead. So in describing him as a person, which means that like the other members of the Trinity, he has a personality. He has life. He has intelligence. He acts and responds to actions. He can even be described as having emotions. If you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, is described as a he. He's also described in this passage as being sent by the Father and being sent by the Son. So the Holy Spirit, the fully God, is under the authority of the Father and functions to glorify the Son. So there is a role, there's a difference in his role as compared to God the Father. The Holy Spirit here is also called the Spirit of Truth, which makes sense. Because since he is God, we would expect him to be the source of truth. And the message that he carries is one that he carries from the Father and from the Son. So he is the Spirit of Truth. So this is God the Spirit that Jesus... God the Son is telling and teaching his disciples about. He is going away, yet the Spirit is there with them. And how is the Spirit then described? In particular, what is he doing in this passage? Well, what he's doing in this passage is he is speaking the message of Christ to the disciples and through the disciples. He's teaching the message of Christ to the disciples, but then also through the disciples. Look back in chapter 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And look at this. And you will testify also. You will testify also. He's speaking a message not his own, but rather what he receives from Christ. And that's the message we proclaim, correct? As Christians? When we share the message of Jesus Christ, look at verse 13 of chapter 16. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what's to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So what is he doing? He is speaking the message of Christ to the disciples and through the disciples. But then also in this passage, we see the Holy Spirit doing something not necessarily among the believers, but among the world. And in verses 8 through 11, we see the Spirit's activity to the world. Now remember, in this context, this is the world that hates Christ. So we're not just isolating these, pass these, these verses and, and taking them out of their context. We have to look at them in the context. And in the context, you have the world opposing Christ. 
hating Christ, hating his followers. So what is the Holy Spirit doing? Well, he is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're going to park here just for a little bit. What does God the Spirit do to every unbeliever? This. Every unbeliever. Every unbeliever. We all were unbelievers, so he did this with us. But here his activity is described with the unbelieving world. And it says that he is convicting. What does that word mean to convict? Well, if you are in a courthouse and you are convicted, you are charged with a crime, to say, well, that person was convicted. They were found guilty. And that is true in this sense. The Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, is working in the lives of every unbeliever from the standpoint of convicting them, meaning finding them guilty. But this is why context is always important. When the Holy Spirit convicts in the life of an unbeliever, it is with the goal of pointing that unbeliever to the goal of repentance. Man, is that important. So it says here to convict, to bring someone to an acknowledgement of personal guilt. It's showing the sinner his or her sin, and most often as a summons to repentance. Like, here's your sin, you're guilty, but not just leaving the person there. Here's your sin, you're guilty, so repent. So this work of conviction is not conviction, sentence, done. As long as a person wakes up in the morning and they breathe in and out, they have vitals, they have the opportunity to repent. Is that a good thing? Especially when we think back to what we first started this with about the people that come to mind when we say the world, the faces, that the work that the Spirit is doing is not simply saying, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, and leaving them there. No, it's, you're bad, you're guilty, so repent. What is the Spirit convicting of? Well, first of all, he's convicting of sin. And I'll be honest with you, when you're reading through this passage, the explanations Jesus gives aren't really easy to follow. Like when, when you say he convicts of sin, well, why, Jesus? Because of this. Uh, well, okay. We need to explain this a little bit. Why is he giving this explanation? Well, verse 8. And when he, the Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness of judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. What's going on here is this. The Spirit convicts the world of its sin even when they reject Christ. There's a work that God does in the hearts of the world even when they outwardly deny the truth of Jesus Christ. Okay? Okay? This sin is not just the sin of rejecting Christ. It's also the conviction that they are in sin. And if they did believe in Jesus, which they don't, right? Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. If they did believe in Jesus, what would they do? They would turn to him. But they're not. The spirit of truth 
convicts them of the truth. This is where you and I, if you're a believer, must realize that we are not accountable for the response to truth in the, from the standpoint of we cannot control the outcome when we share the gospel with someone. Now, we shouldn't be jerks about it either. But when we share the gospel of truth, and the gospel of truth, through the spirit of truth, convicts a person of their guilt and shows them their sin, the Spirit is responsible for their response. And often that's what we're the most afraid of. How are they going to respond when I share this gospel of Jesus Christ? When they see themselves the way the Bible sees them, we're afraid of that. And there can be outward rejection. But here we have God the Spirit convicting them because they didn't believe in Jesus. They turned from him. And so God is doing that work, even if we can't see it on the outside. So the Spirit convicts of sin. The Spirit convicts of righteousness. Verse 10. You say, the Spirit of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. This is what Jesus did while he was here on earth. He confronted those who thought themselves to be righteous that they weren't. Those who lived in outward righteousness, but inwardly he describes as, as what, whited sepulchers full of dead man's bones. You know, the week before he's crucified, Matthew chapter 23 speaks of Jesus and the woes that he shares. Woe to you, scribes, hypocrites. These were the spiritual ones. These were the spiritual leaders. And they have a righteousness, but it is not a righteousness of God. And here it says that the Spirit convicts concerning righteousness because Jesus is going to the Father. And part of the gospel message of Jesus Christ is that our righteousness in God's eyes are like filthy rags. Your best efforts cannot earn favor with God. They can't and won't. We heard testimony about this just several weeks ago in baptism. We're a young woman cleaned up her life on the outside, but there was still something missing. This was more than just outward change and outward reformation. No, this was an emptiness that only Jesus Christ can fill. We aren't about cleaning up the outside and leaving the inside bankrupt. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, convicts to where... Even my best efforts, the righteousness that the rest of the world looks at and gives me an attaboy for, even that falls short of the glory of God. And I don't know why, save for Jesus, because I'm doing the best I can. But it's still not enough. And I feel that. And, and this person who tells me about Jesus tells me that, that my good works, and that's, that's repulsive to me. That's repulsive to unbelievers that their best efforts don't earn God's favor. It's like telling a person who, quote-unquote, is doing the best they can, it's just not good enough. That's a killjoy. But that's what the Bible says our good works are. Because our best efforts are stained with sin. Our best efforts aren't for the glory of God. Our best efforts aren't because we love God so much and because we love one another so much. And if we do momentarily 
momentarily. It's not consistently. It's not because God changed us from within. No, the Spirit convicts of righteousness. And then the Spirit convicts of judgment as well. Judgment. Even though it is Jesus who will die soon at the hands of the world, and so would the disciples, the Spirit will convict the world that the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus, man, I don't want to be irreverent. But at the end of 24 hours after this, Jesus looks like a loser. And so will the disciples to the world. But what does the Holy Spirit do in the work of the hearts of the world? Even in the presence of victory, we killed him. We, we defeated this man. He's done. What does the Spirit do in the hearts? He convicts them. The ruler of this world has been judged. It's as good as done. On the outside, it looks like Jesus and the disciples will lose. And you know what? So will we when we're hated by the world. Yet the Spirit will be convicting the world that even in this temporary victory, the ruler of this world will lose. So the disciples are called to carry a gospel. And we as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to carry a gospel that frankly our world will often push against and they will hate us for often. Yet the desired outcome here is the Holy Spirit speaking into the hearts of the world to convict them so that they might repent. So that they might come to be followers of Jesus. It's a message empowered by the Spirit that implores the world to turn and to believe in the one that they presently reject. Now, this section of John, verses 14 through 16, is, like I said before, the first real instruction on the Holy Spirit. The presence and his activity are assumed, yet Jesus is taking time to prepare the disciples for the Spirit's role in the life of the church. So, this is where we're going to pick up next week. How does the rest of the New Testament describe the Spirit's activity, especially for us, the church? And we're going to answer that question. How is it that Jesus can say it's better for him that he goes away? And what we're going to do next week is we're going to look at the rest of this chapter, John chapter 16, but we're also going to look at what the Spirit does in the context of the church. And really, it's taking multiple passages from the New Testament to be able to see that. How many of you have done or worked through the Foundations book? How many of you have done that? Lots of hands. Okay. Could you do me a favor thinking about next week in addition to praying through your prayer thing for this month? Okay. Could you do me a favor? Could you review the chapter on the Holy Spirit? Part of making disciples here at Grace Church of Mentor is our heart to come alongside new believers or perhaps untaught believers and to open God's word and to show them what God's word says about God. And we have a tool that we use here at Grace Church of Mentor called the Foundations Book. And this Foundations Book has different chapters on different aspects of doctrine or teaching, theology about God. One of them is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we're going to be looking at what the Holy Spirit does in the context of the local church. 
the body of believers, Christians in this day and age, Jews and Gentiles. You see, this is in Israel. We're in the church. We have this hodgepodge of cultures, ethnicities, that God has seen fit to put together to where he gets so much glory, even to where Jesus says, as God the Spirit works in this way, it's actually to your advantage that I'm not here. This is a good thing that we have the Spirit. But our understanding of the Spirit must be governed by Scripture, what he does. And not only that, our understanding of the world around us must also be governed by Scripture and what he is doing even in their hearts. Okay, so come back next week. We'll finish this up as we look at God the Spirit. Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you for your loving kindness to us. Give us, Lord, uh, diligence as we have talked today and we really just kind of touched the surface of the third person of the Godhead. We worship in a way that um, is mindful that we worship a triune God. And to be sure, we preach Christ and him crucified. To be sure, we pray in Jesus' name. To be sure, we pray to our Father in heaven. But Lord, even if by accident, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for shortchanging the role of the Spirit. For perhaps giving him passing thought. But Lord, you have seen fit to have God dwell with us and in us forever. To help govern our behavior. Lord, you've even given the Spirit to convict the world so that when we have the opportunity of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, there is a conviction that takes place by the Spirit. A conviction that we can't bring about by good logic or a, a witty response. No, by the work of God in the hearts of those who we love, even those who may hate you. Such were some of us. Lord God, if there are those here in this room that have rejected Christ, they've rejected having him be the Lord of their life, may the Spirit do that convicting work not through a, one person's words, but through your word, through the word of God, through the lives of the believers that they see, through the joy, through the peace, through the love, through the fruits of the Spirit. And Lord, we have given thanks and will give thanks for how you've used them in those of us who believe. And so, Lord, we ask for grace to use us in the lives of those who have yet to believe. And we will give you praise and give you all the glory for what you will do in your convicting work and your converting work. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close this morning with...